Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. The time is 10 a.m. I'm your host, Xavier Mejia. Please welcome Q Talk Radio's guest of the year. (laughs) I'm already pumping you up already. Uh, I just want to say that on this morning, today's morning's uh, interview is going to feature someone that I got to meet recently, but have quickly have learned so much about and I've heard nothing but great things about you. Uh, So just want to share with folks that on today's episode, we're going to speak with uh, Catherine Perez Estolano. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. So please help me welcome Catherine to the show. Hi, good morning, Catherine. How are you? Good morning, Xavier. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. I'm really looking forward to not only sharing my story, but also hopefully um, giving others an opportunity to see how uh, running as an out candidate in a statewide state race, um, but also living as an uh, as an out person is really has really been important to me. But it didn't come easily, and it didn't come overnight. So I'm I'm excited about sharing my story. And that's precisely why I wanted uh, you to come and share this with us. I think you know we see a lot of folks running, uh, and years come and go, and a new face pops in and a new voice and a new story. Um, But your story in particular uh, has something that I think um, we've needed for such a long time. We don't have any uh, women in the Senate and and Latinas, particularly Latinas. Um, And so I think I'm interested to know, what does it take to run and who are you and where did you find this desire, if, if you call it that? So um, let's start off with letting our audience know a little bit about who you are. Where did you grow up? Um, who, who are your folks? Um, tell us a little bit about what life was like for you growing up. All right, thanks so much. So, again, it's, my name is Catherine Perez-Estolano. I'm a candidate for state senate in District 25, which includes Pasadena, Burbank, Glendale. It's a big district. It stretches to actually Upland, so it's along the 210 Gold Line Corridor. Um, and um, just very quickly, my, my background, I grew up in Coachella, uh, the granddaughter of farm workers. Um, I grew up in Coachella before Coachella is what people know it as today. It uh, is very much a, a poor community of immigrants and um, and so I grew up understanding the value of hard work and commitment and commitment to family. My mother is a lifelong school teacher, uh, and uh, she taught me the importance of, of uh, faith, the importance of uh, family, but also public service. It's always been ingrained in my family, public service. And so I am the oldest of three. I have a sister and a brother, both younger than, than me. But... Um, I have, a, I have a story that I think is similar to others in that um, I'm 50 next year, and I would offer that being a lesbian was not 
part of the conversation. It wasn't, uh, it was never considered an option. I grew up Catholic. Uh, my mother probably never, I know she never said the word lesbian, gay, queer, any of it. Um, and my sister actually came out first and that she was um, involved with a woman. And my mother had a very difficult time with that. And then that experience actually postponed my ability to come out because I was helping my mother grapple, cope, understand that it wasn't anything she was responsible for, but that um, and nothing that she could have done. She, she blamed herself. And, and I said, Mom, this is not anything you could have prevented. It's, it's who she is. And so it took my mother some time, but she has learned to embrace my sister and my sister's bisexuality. And, um, and for me, it was a little bit different because I had married my husband. Uh, we have three wonderful children. I still love my husband very much, and we're still very much parent partners, and we love each other dearly. But there was something that I couldn't address, and I had to keep secret for almost 20 years, and I couldn't do it. Um, I couldn't do it anymore. And it was also, Xavier, knowing that one of my daughters was, was gay. I knew in, in utero, honestly, that one of my daughters was going to be gay. And I told my husband at the time, I said, we have one that's gay and we just, you got to know that. And she certainly grew up to be that way. And, um, and, and I had hoped by coming out early, coming out probably at a time that my mother was going to have a difficulty with it. I had to come out before my daughter um, was facing her own coming out um, situation. So I came out at 40, almost 10 years ago. Um, I married my wife and, uh, about three years ago, and uh, we are parents of six kids now. So I have my older children, and she has her younger children, and my mother loves us all. And so the arc of, her, of my mother's experience, the arc of those boomers that I think are some are still struggling, you know, the boomer parents are struggling with what is this, what is this, mm-hmm. what is trans? You know, what is all that? And I have a trans nephew. And so watching and helping and, and giving her understanding that it's love, it's, um, it's, it's the kind of love that she experienced with my father, but it's a love that is the same basis. And so she's, she, she embraces us all, the trans nep- uh, grandson, the, the lesbian daughter, the bisexual daughter, um, and so, you know, if, if a Catholic Mexican from Coachella, who is approaching 75, can get to a good place with all of the cultural, faith, family stuff that sometimes constricts our culture of the Latino community, I think, you know, I have great hope. But we have to move forward. It was because, because Xavier... We're losing representation in the state legislature in terms of LGBT. And uh, there are no Latinas in the state Senate right now. And so being running out has been critically important to me for people to break through the assumptions of when they look at me and they see something that they think, oh, I get asked all the time, what's your husband do? And I said, well, my wife's an attorney. (laughs) Right? And, and so now, and I move right past it. 
it's got to be that natural. And it's got to move that easily for people to say, when I am introducing myself in, in front of groups I don't know, in front of groups I do know, I say, well, you know, I'm a parent, my wife is an attorney, and I just move like without skipping a beat because it has to be natural for folks to understand that any, you could be working with a trans person and not know it. And that's where we're at. And I hope that we get to a place where that's the normalcy. So running as an out candidate has been very important to me. The family of the LGBT community has embraced me so, I can't even tell you. Um, the support has been tremendous and overwhelming. Um, it has given me confidence and um, the kind of motivation that when, I'm, when it's hard and it gets really hard to do this, because you get attacked on all kinds of things, my, my LGBT community will come up and kind of lift me up, and they will remind me, continue, continue, continue to push. What are some of those messages that they're, that they're telling you or, or sharing the, with you? The LGBT community? Right. That, that you, represent the, the, you represent not only the hope, but you represent the breaking through of what you know, the, the society that doesn't understand us, the society that has all these assumptions. It's all the, the comments that are coming in the national conversation around LGBT, particularly from the Republican Party, that don't understand and deny that, um, number one, we have rights, deny that we even exist, deny that we are fully whole people, and that we have even denying us family. Um, they give me hope because they say, my LGBT supporters, they say, Catherine, you know, you're a successful business person, you're a professor, you're a state commissioner, you're a, um, you are the representation of what we want to hold up as an example of qualified candidates for state office. And when people say, what does it look like to be LGBT, you point to me and say, that's who we are in the future, that's who we are actually today. But I want, what I want to do, Xavier, is I want to build a pipeline. I want to build a pipeline of young LGBT people who are interested in political leadership, in civic leadership, so that I'm not one of the few, I am the only Latina running, LGBT running for state senate in Southern California. There's one other Latina running for state senate. She's not LGBT, she's in Northern California. And so, but that in California, don't you think we should have maybe more than one or two Latinas serving in the Senate when, it, when we've got such a huge population in the state and we've got so many unique issues? So um, the LGBT community has not only supported me financially, supported me in terms of on the ground, getting to voters, reaching out to people who would be interested in supporting my campaign, um, the, the endorsements from the LGBT uh, caucus of the state legislature, from Equality California, from Honor PAC, uh, those have been tremendous. So I, I just kind of want to credit the larger LGBT as a wonderful place, as a, as a place to have, find a home and to find um, the kind of support when you think you're alone. Right. You know, you touch on so many important topics and and it's true all of these topics are related interrelated 
Um, I want to share with folks that, you know, you and I met through someone at the Pasadena Pride Center. And um, Pasadena Pride was talking in my ear and said, you have to have Catherine on your show. And I said, okay, well, let's meet. And as, as we talked, you know, I was fascinated to learn that you didn't grow up necessarily in politics. It wasn't like you left Coachella to seek a political career. Share with us, um, how, how did you get from Coachella to the San Gabriel Valley? What was that step like and what was it for? Sure. So I went to college and um, I wanted to be as far away from Coachella as I could be, like any young teenager. But uh, my family had said, you have to stay close. You have to, stay, you have to go to college in a city where there's family. So it limited my ability. Um, but I ended up getting my, master, uh, my undergraduate at um, Cal State Northridge, and I got my master's at UCLA. And I happened to teach at USC and UCLA in the graduate schools of planning. So I ended up in Pasadena, always civically involved always politically involved. I worked on the Clinton campaign in, in uh, 1998. I worked before Dianne Feinstein. I've worked on Hilda Solis, our supervisor now, when she was running for the Rio Hondo Community College in 1995, I think. Um, so I've always been involved in kind of helping people, helping other Latinos run, Antonio Villaraigosa, um, Alex Padilla, a lot of people who are in higher office right now or who have been in um, higher office in Los Angeles or, or other places, I've always helped others. And so the reason why I ran, and it was pretty simple, was that um, in California, we, just ha- we have a terrible housing crisis, and we're not housing our people. Um, they're dying in streets. They're sleeping on streets, and it's mostly families and, and single mothers that are falling through the cracks and um, I think that we need to step in. And, and I come from planning and land use, so I understand the tools that we need to help the cities from the state, have the state help the cities be able to build the housing. This is what you teach, right? This is what I teach, right? Yeah, exactly. So, and, and so I said, well, when, when is the state going to do something about this? When is the leadership and the political will going to emerge to understand that there are real critical issues on the ground in our cities? And, um, and it was really that kernel issue of the housing crisis, of the homelessness and the mentally ill kind of stumbling around on our streets and that we need to take care of people better because we are better as a society. And once I started, and it was my wife, my wife, I was complaining about this last year. I said, when are they going to do something? When is, that we used to have tools and the state could actually reintroduce those tools and they haven't. And so my wife said, well, why don't you run? And I, I wasn't entirely prepared for her to say that to me. But she said, you know, you've lived in this area for so long. You know it. You've been part of the development and planning of it. You know the community. So it's not convenient, Xavier, for me to run. And I'll be candid about that. Um, I'm in the middle of my career. I'm not retired. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm older, so I'm not, uh, I have obligations. But it's the harder choice to step away from my, my um, professor appointments. It's the harder choice to step off of my state commissions, to step back from my work, to tell my children, look, I'm going to miss a few things, but this is really important not just to me but to a lot of folks. 
um, and to step away from things for a, about six months. You have to step away hard because you have to make the effort to send your message to the voters, to supporters. It was in, it's not convenient, but there are few things when they're really important that are conveniently timed. So I always used to say that, that when I was pregnant, you know, it's never convenient to be pregnant, <laughs> ever. I mean, just tell you. But, um, but I will say that being a parent has been, for me, one of the most fulfilling, rewarding, challenging experiences I've ever had. But it's really for my kids and for all of our future generations that I'm thinking, unless it's me now, then who and when? And you have to kind of look at yourself and say, are you ready to do this? Are you the right person? And, um, and you go through a bit of a, an analysis to make that decision. And I came out to the conclusion like, heck, you know, if I don't do this, these issues will stay dormant. We won't be bringing them up because nobody will. And so for that, you know, it's, it's kind of like I had a small, I have a, I have a chance. I have a big chance actually now. But um, when I started, people said, it's going to be really hard but you have a chance. And I said, well, if I have a chance, then that's a chance worth taking. And that's why I decided to, to do it. As, as I'm listening to you speak, I'm reminded of, of some of the discussions we had earlier on um, when we, we said, hey, let's have you on. Let's have you on the show. And one of the things that comes across to me is that you've done a lot of work, a lot of self-work. And it seems like, you know, there's been stages in your life, you know, uh, you had your upbringing that you experienced, you left Coachella, you came to the San Gabriel Valley, you got your bachelor's, uh, then you got your master's, you teach, you develop, um, you're a mother, uh, you've seen Pasadena and the San Gabriel Valley change and, and, and go through so many stages. And you're talking about so many things that many of us, talk about amongst one another, which is what's going on. The homeless population is growing. It's clearly, uh, you know, something that we see growing year after year. Um, there's mental health issues that we are maybe not providing services for or not enough services for. And uh, we've seen, you know, this, this need, and you're talking about, not just addressing it by saying, I'm going to go to the town hall meeting, but I'm going to run for office. Mm -hmm. So you're really putting, you know, yeah, you have to. you're really saying, I'm going to do this. Yeah. I, I'm taking on that responsibility. And you're also talking about what it takes to actually run, which is kind of putting your personal life aside on, on hold, your, your job, uh, your, your, pro your personal, your, your immediate personal projects, um, what what sort of advice um, would you give yourself six months ago? My mother had the best advice. Um, she was my first biggest donor, right? Um, and she wrote this lovely note with it, and she said, "Miha, you know, I'm very proud of you. This is this is going to be one of the biggest challenges of your life." Um, Remember that people can be cruel, but also people can be really wonderful. And, and that's, been the one, that's been the best experience is to meet people like you and many others um, and to realize that there is a role for all of us to help 
those who have less means. And for those of us who kind of look around and we, we, we have the luxury of, of being able to enjoy things and enjoy our lives, there are so many others that are at the edges or, or, or simply have no means to take care of themselves. One of the things that I realized in the LGBT community is that we don't have the services that we used to. We used to have uh, centers and clinics and services just for the mentally, the, the issues that we face as, you know, the trans, the, the, the youthful trans community. I mean, um, my nephew, who is, who's been trans and we've known forever, um, you know, he needs to have his own kind of uh, services uh, to be able to not only have the therapy to have the space to talk to somebody, to work through those things. But then there's all these other things that he has to deal with, and we're able to provide that for him. But what about folks who have, you know, parents who are in retail, right? And um, their parents don't have hundreds of dollars per month to say, oh, look, go ahead and go to this, uh, this psychiatrist and have them... You know, or their now. parents don't even don't even want to accept them. Right. I was just speaking to as I was walking away from the campaign headquarters, a woman from Merced, and uh, I introduced myself to her, and she says, "You know, my daughter is LG, um, lesbian, and her girlfriend is uh, is having a tough time with her parents, and it's just been uh, this this terrible like you have to leave, and and that is a reality. So when we think when we think about our lives, and for those of us who have the wonderful luxury of parents and family friends that support us. Um, that's remarkable. It should never be taken for granted because there's so many other people that don't have that. And so they need, they need housing. They need uh, therapy, psychiatry. They need jobs. They need education. They need access to healthcare services. And those are things that in our community, there aren't a lot of voices. Like, for example, if I get a chance to serve, those are going to be things that I know because I'm part of the community. And absent that, we won't have that voice speaking on our behalf. So that's why you have to reflect. You have to kind of say, wait a minute. Rather than say, why not? Why don't we have these things? Say, how can I help get these things? You know, and, and that's been the call to action. That's been the call to action. And I think that's when you look around and you say, and it was my call to action when I said, we know, I know that we can do better. I know that we can house people. They don't have to die in the streets when it's raining and cold. And we've had people die in the streets of Pasadena and Los Angeles. So what, does that mean that um, when you say uh, we could do better, does that mean that there's potentially folks who don't know better, or is it just not doing better? Well, it's, it's that, um, you know, we're increasingly becoming a community of have and have nots. We have, we're increasingly becoming a, a divided place. And it's not just like San Gabriel Valley. I mean, it's in many cities. Cities are very similar in, in very basic ways, but we're increasingly having people who have housing and, and, and comfortable lives and then there's everybody else who's in overcrowded apartments, substandard housing, garage. They're in garage units, um, illegal units and conversions. That's what I'm saying is that we can do better. We need to do better. So 
those folks that are living here and having to live in those substandard conditions don't want to live like that. And I think that what we need to do as a society is we need to say, how do we come together to be able to solve for some of these bigger social issues? And so if it's housing, education, access to good jobs and, and um, health care, those are things that other countries, other states can provide to their residents. And how come California can't? We need to, and isn't, we need to make sure, and, and you know, I know Senator Ricardo Lara has been doing a lot around immigrant children and youth having access to medical services. Huge. That's a big deal. Um, we need to make sure that all of our uh, folks who are in California have access to the services that they need because we're such a wealthy state. We're such an incredibly wealthy state. So that's what I mean is that we can do better. It just takes a political will to do better. And that's where I find, that's why I'm asking, you know, the listeners, the audience, to reflect on themselves. Is there a role that I, and it doesn't have to be politics, Xavier. In fact, I didn't feel the burning urge to be an elected official. I was married to one. I've worked with many. But if, if you see a need and you know that you can, if you know that you can actually serve in an important role, then that's what you need to do. And it can be at your church. It can be at your, um, your social association. It can be at your work. It can, wherever it is. Um, but you, if all of us contributing will help everybody live better. Um, but, it's, but it's that we're, we have the, the separation right now. And I think what we need to do is kind of realize that we all have one big boat. And if the boat kind of sinks, we all go down in that one big boat. You know, I know we don't have a lot of time left, but I, I, I want to ask you, has it been, um, have there been any challenges about running as someone that is out? In terms of running as an out candidate, I was very worried in the beginning that people, my opponents or other people, would use the you know my my story against me, my own life. I made hard decisions. I had to come out. I had to divorce my husband. I married my wife. I didn't leave my children, but people can spin stories. And I had very honest conversations with my family to say this could happen. You know, they could mangle up our, our narrative into whatever they want and spin it any way they want. And I was very worried about that. It has not come true. And I have to say that that is one measure of, I think, growth. We are, I don't want to say evolving, but we kind of are. We're evolving to the place where someone like me can run out as an out candidate and it's like, okay, She's LGBT. Now, there's some communities that are still trying to figure out, okay, what, is, what does that mean? And those are certain kinds of groups. But, you know, we, if we just move forward and we don't look back and we don't kind of make an explanation of who we are or what we are, we just say, this is who I am. And you can either accept me or you don't. But this is who I am. And so, if anything, the challenge has really been kind of getting people to see that I am all of that. I am a mother. I'm a wife. I'm a civic 
person. I'm a business owner. I'm a uh, person who cares very deeply about the future of our state. But I'm also, you know, I'm in love with my wife. I got married in my church, and it's legal, right? And that's that is the. And by the way, my name is one of the longest names on the ballot, <laughs> Catherine Perez Estolano, because I took her name, and I took her name because. I didn't want anybody questioning that relationship, that that marriage, my marriage is just as legitimate and legal as my marriage to my husband was. And if anything would happen to me, there would be no doubt as to who was my wife. And so that was, and she didn't take my name. I didn't ask her to, but I wanted to take it because it was an important stand. It was an important thing to say, to, to everybody, that this is a legitimate relationship, this is a legitimate and real marriage. And I don't know why, I, I remember talking to her about it, and she said, uh, why do you feel so strongly? Because I didn't take my husband's name. And I said, you know, because this is, this is the marriage that I was supposed to have. This is the relationship I was supposed to have. Beautiful. I mean... <laughs> Beautiful, just wonderful. What a um, what a, a tribute to your your marriage. Um, it's evident that your love for your children is um, goodness unmeasurable. Really, uh, to to want to be an example to your daughter and, and say, you know, there is no shame about who you are and I will lead by example. Uh, I mean, goodness, you, you don't back down easy. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's what was so hard. I think that that was what was so hard was the political establishment. Cause you know, I'm, I would mess up the, I would, I would complicate the, the lineage that others have designed for these seats. You know, people decide, Oh, well in three years, Joe gets to run. In three years, Steve gets to run. It's, not, it's usually not a woman, and it's certainly not an LGBT. I'll just say that. Needless to say, it was when I, when I told everybody I was going to run, the people who know me in the political world said, oh, crap, she's really going to do this. And I have the wherewithal to do it. And what I'm most proud of is the kind of support that I've received from young and old and, you know, students and and, uh, high schoolers are even in my campaign. And for them to see that this, you know, that this person is the future. I'm the, I'm literally the youngest person running in, uh, for the seat in my district. And uh, I think I really represent that future vision for the district. But yes, it, it, it came when I told all the political people, this is what I'm doing, they kind of sh- turned around and said, oh, we're going to have to deal with this. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, there there used to be a time, I remember being a kid in the late 70s and early 80s, you know, you don't always, you know, as a person of color, you don't always see yourself on TV. You don't always see yourself in positions of leadership. So I've seen that change yes. uh, take place in my lifetime. And, uh, you know, we we hear you know Hillary Clinton running on I'm a mother you know on on her life experience and and I sometimes I'm I'm mind boggled by the fact that this 
hasn't happened already. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I just want to let folks know about some important dates. Yeah. What are what are important dates that people should know about? Absolutely. Well, there. This is a very critical election year, and anyone who is not right now registered to vote needs to register to vote before May 23rd, which is Monday. So, um, if you haven't registered, please go to the post office, go to the library, go to City Hall, and you need to uh, register to vote because Latino vote. The LGBT Latino vote is critical, and you need to make sure our voice is heard. So that's number one. Number two, uh, we have a primary election day of June 7th, and Latinos are terrible at coming out in primaries. So we need to make sure that the Latino vote is loud, it's clear, and that we register by the 23rd of May, and then on June 7th, we on Tuesday, June 7th, you get into the polls, make sure you, um, you cast your ballot and then the next date is in November. That's the general. Uh, but that's not uh, for another six months or so. But right now, the most urgent dates, May 23rd, get yourself registered. And then June 7th, make sure you cast your ballot. So Monday. Like Monday is Monday. crucial. Because if Monday right. doesn't happen, you're, you're, you're not. Out. Yeah, you're out. Okay. Right. Um, and I always say, you know, we have to get out there. And it's always... Um, you know, I, I see the passion for, you know, I want this president and I want that president. But when it comes to local politics, I, you know, I don't know why there's such an absence. And, and so I, I think part of the buzz around you is because you are igniting so many, <laughs> you know, so many young people are interested. So it's causing other folks to ask, well, who is who is this person? What's going on? You know? Um, so, you know, we did, we did include your information on the episode description on, we're going to include this on our blog. So for more information on this show, please visit qtalkradio.com. And for Catherine's page, please visit Catherine for the number four SD for state yeah, Senate District. SenateDistrict25.com. So Catherine4D25.com. And you also have a Facebook and a Twitter page. Oh, yeah. and type in my name because it's a, lot, it's, it's a very unique name. So if you just type in my name, you'll get the Twitter, the Facebook. Um, you'll get the website. There's a, we've done videos. We've done Vimeos. Um, I've done other radio interviews, and we, we make sure that they're all there. You get to see the endorsements and others that are supporting my campaign. So, yeah. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you. And thank you to everybody who's listening because it's part of this information sharing, storytelling, that is, and story sharing. I mean, to be able to share my story with um, the audience is just really personally uh, satisfying uh, because this is not something I thought I would do, but it's certainly something I am excited to share with everyone. Thank you. Appreciate you uh, joining us today, especially so early. Once again, you're listening to Kids Talk Radio. I'm your host, Xavier Mejia. We were just listening to Catherine, Catherine A. Perez Estolano. For more information on this show, visit Q Talk Radio. Thank you very much.